the theory of breath work is that since this is the only thing you can do both consciously and unconsciously, and you're using two different sets of nerves and muscles, voluntary ones and involuntary ones, it's the only, it gives you a chance to change the function of the involuntary nervous system. So the, the theory is that by using your voluntary system to impose rhythms on the breath, gradually you induce those in the involuntary nervous system. And this is the relaxation response. This is, uh, combats overactive sympathetic nervous activity, which is very common in our population. The, the results that I've seen from this are, are amazing. It is the most effective anti-anxiety measure I've come across, makes our drugs look pathetic. Uh, I've seen people that have had cold hands all their life who now have warm hands, people who've had digestive problems that have now resolved. So it's a really good thing to do. Hello, hello, welcome back NeuroHacker community. I'm so excited to announce we have Dr. Andrew Weil on the show with us today. Dr. Weil is a total legend. He's an internationally recognized expert on medicinal plants, alternative medicine, and the reform of medical education. He's also the editorial director of his popular website, drweil.com. He's the founder and chairman of the Weil Foundation and the chairman of Wild Lifestyle. He's also the founder and co-owner of the growing group of restaurants, True Food Kitchen. Dr. Weil writes a monthly column for Prevention Magazine and the popular Dr. Andrew Weil's Self-Healing Monthly Newsletter. He's a frequent lecturer and guest on talk shows. He's also the author of 13 books. This conversation with our host, Dr. Heather Sanderson, is jam-packed with Dr. Weil's wisdom on living a healthy life, from nutrition to stress reduction to psychedelics and breathwork. Now, if you didn't know already, one of the other things we do in the collective is create supplements for better cognition, better aging, and more energy. So go to neurohacker.com to learn more about all our products. And as our gift to you, we're offering 15% off your first order using the code podcast 57. Now let's jump right into the show. Good morning. This is Dr. Heather Sanderson, and I am your host today on Collective Insights. I'm joined today by an absolute legend in the field, Dr. Andrew Weil. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So Dr. Weil, you know, I went to undergrad thinking about going into medicine and 20 years ago and at that point you were a legend and you're you're still a legend today what makes you've had this lifelong career uh what makes it sustainable how did you work so hard for so long well, you know, after I finished my medical training, I decided I couldn't practice the kind of medicine that I was taught because I saw it do too much harm. And I really had learned nothing about how to keep people well, which I think should be the main business of doctors. Um, so I dropped out of medicine and made my living for a number of years as a writer, uh, began learning about alternative medical systems and other ways of healing. Um, I've been writing and saying the same things about health, medicine, medical education for probably 45 years now. And at the beginning, nobody paid much attention to me. And then I got a larger and larger following in the general public, but none of my medical colleagues had listened to what I said. Um, I put together my own system, which at first I called natural and preventive medicine and came to call integrative medicine. And somewhere in the early 1990s, uh, things changed. And that was when the economics of healthcare began to go south. And uh, what I learned from that is that no amount of ideological argument moves anything, but when the pocketbooks of institutions get squeezed, they begin to open up. 
And uh, the University of Arizona College of Medicine, which I had an affiliation with, um, got a new chief of medicine, a new dean, and they allowed me to start what was first called the Program in Integrative Medicine and is now a center of excellence at the university, probably the leading um, institution training healthcare professionals in this new system. So it's been very gratifying to watch the culture catch up with me. Yeah, so what do you think about modern medicine today, conventional medicine? It's more expensive than ever. Pharmaceuticals are more expensive than, than ever, yep. and that's the main tool in their tool belt. What What do you think is going to happen next? Well, first of all, conventional medicine is very good at some things. You know, it is more and more becoming a specialty for treating critical illness, trauma, you know, if I were in a serious car accident, I wouldn't want to go first to a shaman or a chiropractor. I'd like to go to a trauma center. But then I would probably use these other methods to speed up healing. Um, but I think uh, conventional medicine is not able to manage the epidemics of, of chronic diseases that we have today, which are rooted in lifestyle. I also don't think we really have a healthcare system in this country. We have a disease management system that's functioning very imperfectly and getting worse by the minute. And it may be that the whole system is gonna to have to crash. We spend more per capita on health than any other people in the world and we have worse health outcomes. The World Health Organization rates us 38th on a par with Serbia. And that's any way you look at it, infant mortality, longevity, rates of chronic disease. Something is very wrong with that picture. We're spending more and more money and it's gonna sink us economically and we have nothing to show for. So a good way to save money is to live a preventive lifestyle. What is yours? What is yours? Well, life? first of all, the problem is that prevention doesn't pay. Right. And until we can figure out how to make prevention and health promotion pay, we're not going to get anywhere. My own, you know, I for a long time have paid a lot of attention to my own lifestyle. Uh, I'm now 77 and I think I'm doing pretty well. Uh, I eat a, a very good diet. I follow my own anti-inflammatory diet. I don't eat any refined, processed, or manufactured foods. I eat mostly fish and vegetables. And I'll uh, tell our audience that we're on video, and I saw you drinking your green juice this morning. I'm drinking my <laughs> iced matcha this morning rather than hot matcha. I'll talk to you about that later. Oh, yeah. I want to know about matcha. Well, you know, it is the it is the word literally means powdered tea, and it was the form of green tea that was originally used in well has a long history of use in meditation and with samurai culture and tea ceremony, but now it has become very popular in North America. It's the only form of tea in which you consume the whole leaf, and the le the tea is grown under very special conditions. It's heavily shaded for three weeks before harvest, and in response to that, the leaves get bigger, thinner, produce much more chlorophyll more flavor compounds and more antioxidants. So it's an especially healthy form of green tea and we have a lot of evidence for health benefits of green tea. It's great and I've been very, dis I discovered this many, many years ago uh, and have watched, it's been wonderful to watch people get interested in here but unfortunately most of the matcha that people have access to is very poor quality uh, because the powder is so fine, it's got a huge surface area, it oxidizes very readily on exposure to air or light and it loses its brilliant green color, it becomes bitter and loses a lot of its healthful benefits. Every so, time I turn around and read a study about green tea, it, it protects something else, your bones, anti-cancer, right. an, of course, antioxidant, you know, it's got all of these properties that are healthful for so many systems in our body. Now, your particular, the green tea that you're talking about, this is the matcha. What is that? What's different about it from other teas? Explain well, as I said, it's the whole leaf because you're consuming the entire leaf that's been powdered and it's got a higher content of all the good stuff. And one of the good compounds is L-theanine, which has a relaxant effect. And the combination of that with caffeine 
uh, produces a unique state. Uh, people say alert relaxation or calm alertness, uh, very different from the stimulation of coffee. That's the goal, right? Calm right. alertness. Exactly. And so if people are sensitive to caffeine, then is this usually more tolerated? Definitely. And it's a good one to try. So I, uh, because I've been so disappointed in the quality of matcha available here, uh, I started a matcha company. It's uh, got the URL matcha.com and we import directly from Japan. It's great matcha. And uh, so if, I, if your listeners will go to that website, they'll learn a lot about it. And, we, and I have a discount code for you. Uh, it's Neuro15, Neuro15, and if they use that when they go to the website, they'll get a good discount. Oh, great. I'm excited to try it, yeah, because I'm sensitive to caffeine, and so I, uh, I'm i curious if this will be... Yeah, I'd be interested in your reaction to it. Please oh, let me know. I will. And so does matcha only come from Japan, or is there matcha that comes from China or grown <laughs> There's in the There's a, ma- a lot of matcha coming, none grown in the U.S., but a lot grown in China. Uh, they're In response to the increased worldwide demand, it's now being grown in Kenya, uh, I was in Sri Lanka earlier this year, and they're beginning to uh, try to do it because they see a big market for it. But personally, I think I would only use matcha from Japan because they really have the traditional method of cultivation and preparation down. And China, I'm just suspicious of because there's so much contamination of all natural products that come from there. Yeah, there seems to be a high standard of the things that come out of Japan as well. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So we started with your day-to-day routine and how you prevent okay. and how you, I'm going to say more, instead of preventing disease, we'll probably put it more in the camp of, of promoting health, right? Health. This That's is the whole orientation. So, so I talked about diet a bit. I, yeah. I am physically active. I've, my form of physical activity has changed over the years. Currently, it's swimming. Uh, so I swim every day. I swim in a, a pool here in Tucson where I live during you know, much, most of the year. And then I uh, spend summers up in British Columbia on an island that has a wonderful lake that I swim in and an ocean that's quite cold, but I've gotten used to swimming in cold water. And I think that's healthy. Yeah. What, do you have thoughts about sort of the Wim Hof ideas around? I know him and therapy? I've met him and I, I, I don't, you know, I think he's a remarkable person. I don't, he says he can teach this to anyone. I'm not so sure of that, but I think that exposure to cold and attention to breathing, I think that can produce great results. So exercise, diet, matcha in the morning, what are other components of a really healthy lifestyle? I think stress management is really important. I don't think we can eliminate stress from our lives, but we can learn and practice methods to reduce its harmful effects. My personal favorite are breathing techniques, and there's a specific uh, breath technique called 478 breath. If anyone Googles that, uh, or looks for it on YouTube, you'll find videos of me doing it. Very simple technique, takes 30 seconds, and it's got to be done regularly, though. And I think that's remarkably effective at uh, calming people, combating anxiety, neutralizing stress. I think getting good rest and sleep is also important. Um, I sleep an average of seven hours a night, which works for me. And I tend to go to bed quite early, 9, 9.30, and I'm up quite early, you know, 4.35. And uh, I'm definitely a morning person and I do my, you know, work, desk work in the morning. And then I really make an effort to disengage from devices in early afternoon. And I think that's another critical component of healthy lifestyle these days. I think that uh, device dependence and device addiction are really undermining our both physical and emotional well-being. So the breath work that you mentioned, now can someone do that? You're saying regularly, so every day or on demand, multiple times a day. What does that look like? <clears throat> the 
first of all, the technique is you breathe in quietly through your nose to a count of four, hold your breath for a count of seven, and blow air out forcibly through your mouth for a count of eight. And you repeat that for four breath cycles. Later, as you practice it, you can go up to eight breath cycles. And you have to do that twice a day religiously. Uh, you can do it more often, but never more than that number of breath cycles. And then once you have some practice with it, you start using it for things. Um, it's a great way to help fall back to sleep if you get up in the night, if you start to feel anxious, uh, if somebody cuts you off in traffic, <laughs> you know, you do this before you react. But uh, the, the, the theory of breath work is that since this is the only thing you can do both consciously and unconsciously, and you're using two different sets of nerves and muscles, voluntary ones and involuntary ones, it's the only, it gives you a chance to change the function of the involuntary nervous system. So the, the theory is that by using your voluntary system to impose rhythms on the breath, gradually you induce those in the involuntary nervous system. And this is the relaxation response, this is uh, combats overactive sympathetic nervous activity, which is very common in our population. The, the results that I've seen from this are, are amazing. It is the most effective anti-anxiety measure I've come across, makes our drugs look pathetic. Uh, I've seen people that have had cold hands all their life who now have warm hands, people who've had digestive problems that have now resolved. So it's a really good thing to do. If someone were tracking something like heart rate variability, would you expect a change in that? I would. I'll just tell you one story. I, you know, for, I've been doing that breath technique for probably, probably 30 years. And for most of my life, my heart rate was in the seventies. Um, and about 20 years ago, it started to decrease. And now my heart rate is about 40, 42. And sometimes it's in the mid thirties, which alarms people who take my pulse. And I'm not a fanatical exerciser. I'm physically active. The only thing I can attribute that to is doing the breath work. That's incredible. Yeah. And free is quick. I mean, you're talking about four breath no, cycles. No equipment. No equipment. I mean, I, you can do it anywhere in the world on the plane. <laughs> I think it's a perfect example of what integrative medicine can do. It can look around the world at other cultures, other systems, and bring into the mainstream uh, techniques that aren't even on the radar of conventional medicine that, as I say, as you said, cost nothing and are remarkably effective. Yeah. So, other components of a healthy lifestyle. I see you've got dogs behind you. So do I do have three of them. <laughs> do they play a role in your health? I can't imagine life without dogs. And absolutely, I think uh, having a connection with uh, a companion animal for me has been incredibly important, both for physical and emotional well-being. There's some um, very interesting studies that have come out in the past few years. One is that you may have seen is that you know dogs are the only animal that hold our gaze. Uh, you know, most animals regard looking into the eyes as a threat, uh, but dogs have evolved the ability to, you know, hold our gaze. So it's been found that when you hold the gaze of a dog, there is ox oxytocin released both in the dog and in the human. And the longer the, the gaze is connected, the greater the release of oxytocin, which is the hormone that promotes well-being and connectedness. Right. And another one, this is even more remarkable, is that if you exchange saliva with a dog, I won't, I won't go into how that happens, but it happens. Uh, it, this does very good things for your microbiome. Hmm. So uh, is sharing spit with the dog and gazing into their eyes, uh, what about human connections on that note? I think that's incredibly important. In my years when I was seeing a lot of patients, uh, a, a diagnosis that I would commonly write down was disconnection syndrome. Uh, that people 
did not have connection with other people, with nature, with things outside themselves. And I think that leads to, you know, that is a root cause often of uh, impaired well-being. So what was the prescription? I encourage people to do volunteer work, uh, to do hobbies that involve them with other people, to try going to dance groups to get a companion animal. I mean, it has to be individualized, but I think recognizing that it is not healthy to be disconnected. And I think, by the way, this is this is one way that uh, the devices undermine our well-being is that they all this virtual interaction is at the expense of real interaction. Without a doubt. So I can imagine you've met some really incredible people, um, both in the integrative medicine world and probably outside as well. So is there are there any connections that you've gotten from sort of having the celebrity status that really stand <laughs> out to you? <laughs> um, let's see. That's hard to answer. I... I um, I don't, I don't know that, I mean, I'm not, um, I know that category celebrities, but I've met remarkable people in different fields. Um, well, one I'm of my, you in the celebrity category. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> and assuming that that means that it's opened some doors. So you've had to, you've gotten experiences with incredible people. Yeah. And maybe who aren't celebrities, but where they bring that element of connection or humor, something that feels really meaningful and, and healthful. Yeah. Um, well, uh, let's see. I met, um, let me just mention one of my mentors, uh, was a remarkable osteopathic physician named Robert Fulford. I knew him when he was in his eighties. He's the one who actually taught me that four, seven, eight breath technique. And I think, um, he, he's the most remarkable healer I've ever met. And he really made me aware of the power of, of, healing that's rooted in nature, you know, which is something Hippocrates taught to respect the healing power of nature. I mean, he would, he did cranial therapy. It was very gentle technique, remarkable success rate. And, and it felt so good to have his hands on you when people would say, when should I come back? And he said, you don't need to come back. You know, you're fixed. I'm sure they wanted to though. (laughs) They did. And, but he would say, you know, you just make these adjustments and then let old mother nature do her work. And uh, I, I just love that. That had a great influence on me. So what do you think the role of cranial osteopathy is in, in today's medicine? It is, well, first of all, osteopathic manipulative, manipulative technique in general and cranial therapy in particular, I think these are incredible skills and remarkably useful. I, I refer people a lot to them. The problem is that very few osteopaths today use manipulation. You know, they they're pretty much the same as, as, uh, allopaths. Uh, I, I hope there's a trend now for younger osteopaths to begin to rediscover this. Um, but it, it is a w- wonderful technique and, and, uh, I use it a lot. And what about naturopathic doctors? So I'm a naturopathic doctor. I'm curious yes. what you think the role of naturopathic doctors is. And you're also, you're in Arizona where there is a naturopathic college. Um, yep. so, and naturopaths are licensed. They can, prescribe medications, you know, they have a, quite a good scope, a, a wide scope in um, good, I guess is relative, depending on your perspective, um, but quite a wide scope in Arizona. So what do you think the role well, I'm, is? I'm a big, I'm a big fan of naturopathic medicine. I have worked to get licensure for naturopaths in California and other states. I've learned a lot from naturopaths over the years that I've incorporated into integrative medicine. I find naturopathic physicians to be much better trained than uh, conventional physicians in lifestyle medicine, 
in the use of natural products and herbal medicine and mind-body stuff. Uh, I think the areas in which conventional medicine is better is that um, we have much more, much better clinical training. You know, we have much greater exposure to patients. At any rate, I think there's many opportunities for partnership between MDs and NDs. And the assistant director of our fellowship program at the University of Arizona is a naturopathic physician. Uh, and we've always had naturopathic physicians on our faculty. That's fantastic. I, I liked you before we even started this conversation, and now now I feel flattered, so thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I think, you know, the future of, we, we have to have a whole new kind of healthcare, and, you know, I'm convinced integrative medicine is the way of the future, because it offers the promise of improving outcomes while lowering costs, and it does that both by shifting this whole enterprise away from disease management toward health promotion and prevention, and also bringing into the mainstream treatments that aren't dependent on expensive technology. And I think the future of healthcare is, has to be team-based. Um, and I think those, t I definitely want naturopaths to be part of those teams. Do you see a model that we could potentially follow that's out there? You know, I don't. Uh, I have travel widely. I see other countries that do some things better than we do. Uh, Germany and Australia both have uh, systems where they have um, uh, national insurance and then a parallel private insurance. Uh, Germany has a much better tradition of natural medicine than, you know, than we do. But no, I don't see anyone that has it right. And um, in every, in all the developed countries, the forces that are taking our system down are building, and it's that aging populations, uh, rising epidemics of lifestyle-related diseases, which we seem unable to prevent, and then the rising costs of conventional treatment. So, what do you think the next step is? Is there a, a first step? I know you certainly are one of the people I think of as taking the first steps, right, of getting um, integrative medicine more widely recognized. So what's the next step? Well, you know, our uh, Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona has now graduated almost 2,000 uh, physicians, uh, physician assistants, nurse practitioners from very intensive fellowship training. Uh, they're in practice in all states and in other countries. That's still a drop in the bucket, but it's beginning to be real numbers. Uh, I, I, I don't think the, the basic practical problem is how do we convince the people who pay for health care that it's in their interest to pay for integrative treatment? Uh, because the, the, the backward priorities of reimbursement are the big obstacle out there. You know, we happily pay for drugs, for interventions. We don't pay for a doctor to sit with a patient and talk to them about diet or teach them a breathing exercise. You know, that has to change. And, um, you know, that's, that's going to be tough. I think we need to, to get data from outcomes and effectiveness data to convince the people who pay for healthcare that it's in their interest to pay for this. But as I say, um, the more desperate things get, and they're getting very desperate, uh, the more people see the wisdom of integrative medicine. And you mentioned outcomes data. I think one of the other challenges is that it takes a lot of money to get that outcomes data. And when there isn't Absolutely. a profit And who's going to do it? You know, NIH doesn't do, do those right. kinds of studies. Uh, my hope is that uh, we might be able to get the private sector to pitch in here because corporations are so hobbled by healthcare costs and they're not bound by ideology. If we could get corporations to set up even some pilot studies, you know, you pick conditions that where integrative medicine could really shine and that have now absorb most of our healthcare dollars, things like back pain, allergies, uh, gastroesophageal reflux, and you 
get large groups of patients matched for age, gender, diagnosis. One group goes to conventional medicine, one goes to integrative medicine, and you track health outcomes, cost outcomes, patient satisfaction. I am totally convinced if we did that, you know, we have the data that we need. Right, yeah, so that um, getting a, a big group like Amazon or Walmart or one mm-hmm. of these big companies or Google, or yeah, Google right, yeah. where yeah. They, they're really invested in keeping their employees well, right, because that right. helps with productivity. Yep. Getting somebody like that to do t- a two-arm study. Yeah, it would yeah. be fantastic. We have at my clinic, we're hoping to do a study. Um, we have most of the puzzle pieces put together, but a, a cohort, we'll take a cohort through an individualized approach to cognitive decline. And Great. I'm, I'm really hopeful that that'll be... Um, something that shines a light on what the potential is for people who might be struggling with the early stages of Alzheimer's. You know, we're, we're looking for partnerships also, like practice-based partnerships where we can pool data from groups of patients. So I might like to talk to you about how we could, you know, connect. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah, great. collaborations. You know, I think that's also a big part of the answer, right? It's getting minds, like minds together, getting resources together, pooling things in a collaborative experience because yeah. we can accomplish so much more together than we can on True. our own, right? And we have all these siloed practitioners and um, and that's part of what makes it hard to get the data, the numbers, right? We don't have yeah. these massive institutions. Exactly. Most integrative doctors are, you know, seeing a patient an hour and um, that you don't get the data, you don't get big data that way. Right. Let me say one other. This is a political statement. You know, as dysfunctional as our healthcare system is, it's generating rivers of money. And that money is going to very few pockets. It's the pockets of the big insurers, the pharmaceutical companies, and the manufacturers of medical devices. And those vets can't get elected to office in this country. It doesn't matter if you're Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, unless you've made deals with them. And until that gets changed, there's no hope. And the only way I see that changing is if there is a grassroots social political movement in this country and enough people get angry enough about the current situation and begin electing different kinds of representatives. I don't see that happening yet. Um, you know, and I'm hoping, my hope is that enlightened healthcare professionals could catalyze that movement. Yeah. Right. Are, are we the ones with the base to, to do that kind of thing? That, that's a good question. Um, maybe you are. <laughs> well, we could start, you know, yeah. talking to your patients, talking to your colleagues. Mm-hmm. If enough people begin, uh, you know, grassroots social political movements can achieve wonders. Well, the, in fact, they probably are the only ones that have. Yeah, um, right. Ever have. So, you know, speaking of grassroots social movements, um, I was wondering what your thoughts around psychedelics and maybe their, <laughs> yeah, you knew where I was going. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> um, the role of psychedelics, I, th- I guess I think of the 60s, right? And when right. when that really was a political movement, a, a social movement, and, right. and things changed ir- irreversibly. So there, now we're on the precipice of maybe some, a reorientation uh, as, a, as a society around the role of psychedelics. What do you think their role is? Well, I think it's amazing to watch this change happening. I was interested in and working on psychedelics back in the 1960s and writing about them in the 1970s. So it's amusing to me to watch suddenly this all happening. Uh, I think we're on the verge of seeing psychedelics uh, becoming available uh, for treatment. I mean, first things like MDMA for PTSD and psilocybin for drug-resistant depression and OCD and ketamine for drug-resistant depression, although ketamine is not really a psychedelic. Um, but long ago, I was writing about the therapeutic potential of these agents. They're very safe physically. Uh, 
you know, safer than any drugs we use in medicine. Their dangers are psychological, and those that those dangers can easily be controlled by attention to set and setting, you know, the environment and expectations, and dose uh, with these use. I I think we need a whole new class of professionals who are trained to to guide those experiences in the right direction um you know there are some people out there doing that now but they'd be the equivalents of shamans in traditional cultures um but on the whole i think this is a you know it may be uh, i sometimes think you know things are so in such a mess in this culture uh, maybe this is the force that has the potential to correct things. Certainly Paul Stamets would, would think so. Yeah. And Michael Pollan might as well. Yeah. Um, so how do you, do you have thoughts about how that might roll out? I mean, I've seen your role has been so multifaceted, right? You've, you've started as an author and, and a medical doctor, of course. You also, I mean, right now you, you own a company that brings matcha to the, the country. You also have this role in an institution, an educational institution, so you're training new doctors to go out there. So with that perspective that so many different lenses on, how do you see psychedelics kind of rolling out would it be, I mean, could you have this insurance reimbursement for psychedelics or I mean, John I think that's not impossible, yeah. you know, that there's still, you know, an awful lot of people use them recreationally and I think waste their potential, you know, taking them at parties is probably you're, you're squandering their potential. I think you, what about going for a hike? I'm asking for a friend. Oh, that's fine. That's okay. fine. <laughs> but I think they have incredible transformative potential. And I've, I've talked a lot about, um, how they can, that by changing things in your mind, they actually change things in external reality. And, you know, I've talked about this publicly and written some about it. Well, uh, you know, I, there's one story that has been repeated a lot is that I had a lifelong allergy to cats. And if a cat got near me, my eyes would itch. If a cat licked me, I'd get hives where it licked me. So I always stayed away from them. And one day when I was 28, uh, I took LSD with a group of friends in a beautiful outdoor setting. And I just felt fabulous. It was just a wonderful time. And in the midst of this, a cat jumped into my lap. And I had an immediate instinctive reaction to sort of pull back. And then I thought, you know, this is silly. I'm in such a nice state. So I just relaxed, played with the cat, had no allergic reaction, and never have had one since. So instant disappearance of a lifelong allergy. I mean, that's fascinating. That and is. Fascinating. And another, I'll tell you another, I have a lot of stories like this, but another one is also around that time, I was trying to, of learning to practice Hatha yoga. And one posture that I had a terrible time with was the plow where you lie on your back and raise your legs and then touch your toes behind your head. You know, I worked at that and I got to where my toes were about a foot from the floor and I got excruciating pain in my neck and I, I couldn't make any progress at it. And, you know, after several weeks, I just thought, well, I'm just too old. I was 28 then, you know, it's too late for me. And then also about this time on another LSD experience where, you know, I felt wonderful and I, my body felt so elastic, I thought I ought to try it. So I lay down and I was lowering my feet. I thought I had about a foot to go and they touched the ground. I couldn't believe it. And I sort of raised them and lowered them. I was so happy. And the next day I tried to do it and I got my feet within a foot of the floor and there was excruciating pain in my neck. But it was now, it was different because I knew it was possible. And I was on the verge of giving up. And I think if I had not had that experience, I wouldn't have been motivated to pursue it. And in a few weeks, I was able to do it. So I think that's another thing they can do. They can show you possibilities that you might not have believed. And those possibilities can motivate you to learn how to have that experience, you know, on a long term basis. 
I work a lot with patients who are highly sensitive, so kind of in this mast cell disorder spectrum, or um, Dr. Shoemaker calls it the chronic inflammatory response syndrome, the molds kind of people who are sensitive to molds or foods, highly sensitive people. Um, Bob Navio, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, but the cell danger response. And that is one of the things that I've seen is whether it's psychedelics or, you know, there are other modalities as well of just retraining the nervous system. Yes. And the breath work is another big component of that, that, that it creates this potential for change. And I think this window into, wow, my body yep. is capable of that. Or, exactly. And my exactly. brain is how I get there. Exactly. Yeah. And exactly. So, yeah. And I think, you know, I think all these sensitivities, even the most extreme ones, they're learned. I mean, allergy is a learned response of the immune system and anything learned can be unlearned. Precisely. Gosh, I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> so good. Um, so if you could have dinner with anyone in the world, who would it be? <laughs> Probably Elon Musk. <laughs> oh, what would you ask him? Well, I want to hear more about his theory that this is all a simulation, uh, you know, that this is not base reality, that as the way computers are evolving, it's uh, overwhelmingly likely that we are, you know, characters in some simulation created by a computer of the future. And what if we are? I don't know. It seems to me that makes life more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> more, more or less, huh? Yeah. Interesting, interesting. So, um, and what, where do you see, what do you want to accomplish with the years you have left? You know, I want to be sure that integrative medicine is on a solid footing, um, and, which I think it almost is. I mean, I've always said that the, the sign of our success is that we'll be able to drop the word integrative. It'll just be good medicine. Um, and, you know, I, I really want to see that happen. I don't know that I need to accomplish anymore. I mean, I don't need to write it. I'm done writing Agreed. books. I don't writing books. I've said enough. Uh, you know, I've, 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 there's a few places I'd like to see. I really enjoy, you know, now I spend a lot of time in my garden. I grow a lot of food. I love to cook, uh, like being with my dogs. I can't imagine not working. I mean, you know, I love being, I love doing things and whether that's, you know, some kind of writing, talking, doing podcasts, occasional speaking, I, I think I'll always be busy. And I've seen too many people who have retired and have within a year had a major decline. So I can't imagine not working, but I can imagine eliminating things that are less fun and, uh, you know, do, spend more time doing things that really uh, bring me satisfaction. Well, I'll tell you, I'll buy any book with your smiling bearded face on it. <laughs> okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, so what, what would you like to leave our listeners with? Is there anything that, uh, you know, I, okay, yes, uh, and I tell this to all the medical students and doctors and other health professionals that I talk to. Uh, I think the a, a great problem that I see in our population, and this is on the part of both doctors and patients, is that people do not have great confidence in the body's ability to heal itself. And to me, that's the most remarkable thing about the human organism, that it can, you know, it knows when it's been injured. Uh, it, it can immediately begin working to repair injury, to regenerate, to adapt to injury or loss. And I think if more people had confidence in that, they would be less dependent on practitioners of all sorts, uh, and we'd all be better off. And I, I'm just constantly amazed at the the healing potential of the human organism and over the years i've had many patients who've come back to me and said the most important thing you did for me was that you were the only doctor i ever saw who told me i could get better 
I mean, in a way that makes me sad, Mm -hmm. but you know, and often I will tell patient, I know you can get better. I don't know exactly how you can get better, but I'll give you things to try. I'll point you in directions. You can go to this practitioner that, but I know that it's possible for you to get better. And I think that can be a very powerful message. Absolutely. I mean, what we were just talking about, right? If it starts in the brain, if all of a sudden the message is there's potential, then that changes everything. It changes the cellular response. It's that learned behavior. Yeah. So do you still see patients? Rarely. You know, I mostly teach now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I see occasional patients. And then I get asked an awful lot for medical advice from friends and people I know oh, and I'm friends sure. of friends I went to elementary school with. So <laughs> you know, I'm constantly busy there. Uh, you know, but the fact is that most diseases are self-limited. If you look at the whole spectrum of illness and they're self-limited because the body takes care of them. Well, and so, this is one of the, I think one of the criticisms of natural medicine or integrative medicine, right? It's, is it regression to the mean or are we really doing anything? <laughs> oh, I think we do things. Uh, I do. I, uh, but I think, you know, by giving, if you give treatment, you get, you give gentler treatments rather than stronger treatments. If you have to use medication, you start with the lowest dose of the least potent agent and then work up. Um, uh, I, I just, there's a famous uh, adage in medicine that, um, you know, the business of the doctor is to distract the patient while time does the healing. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, that's good. Yeah. And um, so I wanted to go back to, to your anti-inflammatory diet just really quickly. Mm-hmm. Do you have some favorite recipes that we can point people in the direction of? I have lots. Of, first of all, I have two uh, cookbooks, cookbooks out there. And one of them yeah. is called Fast Food, Good Food. Um, and that's like, they're really easy recipes that are quick. I, I'm, I'm discouraged by how few people cook today. You know, it's ironic. Sales of cookbooks that are, are at an all-time high and viewership of cooking shows on television off the charts and fewer people are cooking than ever. I mean, what do they do with the books? And I mean, it must be just entertainment. And, and most people I mean say they don't have time, it's too hard. Um, so I really like to show people that you, you can, there are simple, quick, easy, inexpensive things that you can make that are great. I find the hardest part is deciding what to cook. Uh-huh. And then the rest of it's easy after that. Well, one thing that I do is if I if I have a chance to go to a farmer's market or store and see what looks great, then I plan a meal around that rather than starting with a recipe. What did you make last night? Actually, I ate out last night. I'm sorry to say the night before I made a big vegetable stir fry. <laughs> nice. Um, and you have there's restaurants, right? That yes, are- I, I started a concept called True Food Kitchen. Um, and this is really my idea for healthful, delicious food. A lot of the recipes are mine, ingredients are mine, and it's based on the anti-inflammatory diet. And, um, let's see, we started this, I think 10, 11 years ago, we opened one in Phoenix and we are opening this weekend, um, the 30th true food kitchen in Summerlin, Nevada, outside of Las Vegas. Where, where are you based? I'm in San Diego and I've been to the one in, there's two, two there. Yeah. Well, I've been to the one in Newport, I think, and then... There's one in San Diego and one in La Jolla. Oh, and one in La Jolla. I haven't been yeah. to the ones here. I've been to the one in Denver. Okay. And um, I always get, I should branch out, but I always get the curry, the curry bowl. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's so good. And so there's no reason for me to try anything else. I just know it's a <laughs> oh, sure try, thing. Try the ancient grains bowl. Ancient grains that's bowl. That's okay. great. I get that with some um, uh, salmon on top. It's wonderful. Oh, yum. Are, yeah. And is your salmon always wild? Yes. Yes. No, actually, we're using a, a farmed salmon from Scotland, which is organic. Okay. And so you think that that's just as good? Yeah. I mean, we, we vet the fish that we get in there. You know, it's, we're trying to be very careful about that. And that's one we've looked into a lot. Okay, good. You've got, I'm sure you've got a team on that. 
yeah. making sure these are good, good, healthy yeah. foods. That's been fun for me, by the way. You know, I, I don't have much to do with the business of the restaurant, but I give the ideas and source new ingredients and send them recipes. Oh, how fun. How do you get inspiration to come up with new recipes? Well, sometimes I steal other people's recipes and change them. Uh, sometimes I discover, um, you know, new ingredients. Uh, I was in... Uh, Japan recently and there's a, a starch called kuzu that's used in Japan uh, it's, the, it's from the same plant we call kudzu in this country that's a huge invasive pest in the south but it's a really high quality starch and has many uh, health benefits including lowering blood sugar and uh, so I've been uh, experimenting with making soups that are slightly thickened with it and desserts uh, and I introduced that to the uh, to true food and the the executive chef there has come up with a a veggie burger. It's called the unbeatable burger. It's B-E-E-T. Uh, and it's got kuzu in it as one of the ingredients to provide texture. Yum. And I would imagine in your travels, yeah, you're coming a, a, across all kinds of flavors and ingredients and inspiration. I do. Some of them are not feasible for one reason or another. You know, one that I like a lot is uh, bitter melon, uh, which is widely used in Asia. Uh, it, it is a bitter vegetable, but it's good when you stir fry it. It also has interesting health benefits. I haven't gotten our chef yet to figure out how to how to use that. <laughs> yeah, it's good for blood sugar as well. Like it is exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then, do you change your diet with the seasons? Is that something you? Yeah, I think to? yes, definitely. I I mean, first of all, I I I'm not a big fruit eater unless it's in season and local. Um, uh, I, but, and vegetables, I grow a lot of my own food and there's, there's nothing as good as stuff that comes out of the garden. It's just full of chi. And oh, yeah. often I cook, uh, you know, fairly simple food. I like bold flavors, but I don't like fancy preparations. And uh, people say, wow, this tastes great. I've never tasted anything so good. And it's mostly the ingredients that they're just really fresh. Yeah. So what's growing in your garden right now? We're, it's mid-October as we're having this conversation. So. Okay. So I planted, uh, you know, I'm in Tucson. So I, grow, I have winter gardens here and I plant them around the fall equinox. Um, and then I get this heart, usually start harvesting things in late November, December, and then through the spring. So right now uh, I have a bunch of herbs, dill, parsley, oregano, mint. I have um, all the cabbage family stuff, broccoli, cauliflower, kale, Brussels sprouts, um, peas, snow peas, and snap peas. Uh, I, I, my lettuce is germinating very poorly because it's too hot in the day, so I have to wait probably a couple of weeks before I can plant that. I have carrots and beets coming up, uh, so a lot of stuff. And I, I can get it's it's not a big, not a huge space, but I can get a lot of food out of it. And then you have a house in BC as well. Is that what you mentioned? Yes, on an island called Cortez Island. And oh, the garden there is spectacular. And, and you know, things grow so fast there because of the long days. And all the stuff I can't grow here, I can grow up there. Yeah, so what, do you, what did you grow this past summer? Well, I have lots of berries up there that are wonderful. Corn, fantastic corn. Uh, t fantastic tomatoes, which I don't usually get to do down here. Uh, cucumbers, lots of kinds of lettuce. Um, what else? Beets cabbage, lots of cabbage, which I made into sauerkraut and, and making sauerkraut from really fresh cabbage is, is terrific. Yeah. A whole different experience. Yeah. Yum. You're making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> so Dr. Wild, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to have this conversation with us today. It's been such a pleasure. 
Um, I enjoy talking to you very much. Well, and I hope that we'll stay in touch and figure out ways that we can collaborate. Um, Good. Can I tell your uh, listeners, first please. of all, my website is drweil.com, D-R-W-E-I-L.com. It has a lot of health information. And the website of our center is integrativemedicine.arizona.edu. And there's a... And there's a lot of information there, including uh, online courses that are available to the general public. Yeah, that was my next question. So general public, there's a classes for online. And then what about people who are considering careers in medicine? How can they get on a track to be one of your well, students? Well, we have lots of options. We first of all have a, um, a, an elective track for medical students and residents. They can come for a month to learn about integrative medicine. We have a a great online program for allied health professionals, everything from speech therapists to psychologists, social workers. We have a, a health coaching program. So there's a lot of ways that you can interact with us. And what about naturopathic doctors? Is there anything for them? Yes, we, we welcome them. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, they're, as I said, we collaborate with them. We have them on our faculty and we made one of them, uh, you know, the assistant director of our fellowship program. Could a naturopathic doctor do your fellowship program? I think so. Yes. Okay. Maybe. Hasn't happened yeah. yet, but pretend. I'm not sure. I'm sorry. I can't give you an answer That's to okay. that. That's we'll, okay. We'll look online. Sure. We'll find one. Yes. What's your favorite class to teach? Well, I, I teach our, uh, the fellowship classes come in quite regularly and I lecture them I usually give a lecture on nutrition. Um, I talk to them about um, uh, healthy aging. I talk to them about breath work. Uh, I give them reflections on my career in medicine. I give them the political speech about how they have to get out there and change the healthcare system. Uh, you know, I really enjoy. I do some cooking classes as well. So it sounds like your that. job is to inspire more than anything, and you Absolutely do a damn right. good job of it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Wild, thank you so, so much again for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Good to be with you. Thank you for being with us for this podcast with Dr. Andrew Wild. Remember, our show is made possible by Neurohacker Collective. Use the coupon code PODCAST57 for 15% off your first order at neurohacker.com. If you have any questions about this content, please leave them on our site at neurohacker.com slash podcast, and we'll work to get those answered by Dr. Well on a future episode. And if you like this episode, please go leave us a five-star review on iTunes and share it with all of your friends who are interested in living longer, healthier lives. And make sure to subscribe to Collective Insights wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. See you next time.